Did you call me a lush? <laughs> My first drink, and I'm having it with you. Ah. Yeah. The I'm lush. on my third now. <laughs> oh, come on! Who is that? <laughs> I would like, if I may, to take you. No, not, don't be fucking ridiculous. Not you. Leave me the little fuck alone. No, you. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, in, in, the, in the hat? In the hat. Yeah, you, you. Oh, fuck, yeah. Uh, on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. I'm being joined by the wonderful Jesse. How are you, my dear? I'm doing awesome, Adam. Sweet. Awesome. Wicked. Awesome. That's wicked cool. Uh, it is January 5th, and we have a wonderful show for you this week. But first, Happy New Year! Yay! It's the New Year. This is the first episode of the New Year. X-L-I-X. For you Roman numeral fanaticists I actually had it wrong on the website when I first read the website and published it last week and I had one of you listeners um, correct me so thank you for helping me <laughs> not be as dumb as I naturally am I appreciate it oh man so are, do you have any great plans already for this new year Jesse I do not I'm, I'm totally winging it cool never never plan anything just go with it that can either be incredibly rewarding or really boring, <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. Um, yeah, I, I don't really plan anything either. I mean, my wife and I were talking and, you know, we were like, well, we, we definitely this year have to get out more than we did last year. Um, for us, last year was a slow year of, you know, just sort of camping and hiking and just, you know, being in the outdoors. So, you know, definitely we're going to be, we're planning on doing more of that. And we started with uh, snowshoeing yesterday which ended in whiny children, uh, both of which were puking all night and Ooh. me not getting any sleep trying to take care of them. And then obviously, you know, still having to operate during the day. So it, it, it's been a it's been a challenging weekend so far. Challenging New Year so far, I should say. <laughs> See, I've only worn snowshoes a couple of times because I had to. I can't imagine doing that for fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the first time for the kids. Okay. And so I, I wanted to expose them to that. Um, they didn't take to it as well as I thought they might. I mean, we, we hike a lot. And so I just figured, well, hiking on the snow is better than hiking in the snow. So maybe they'll dig it. But no, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't like it so much. <laughs> and, you know, obviously it's winter. So it's cold as shit in the mountains. And so that didn't help at all. And then we think, we suspect that the reason why they got sick was because they were eating snow, even though we were telling them not to. Because why would you fucking eat snow? That's dumb. But yeah, they were eating tons of it. And it had to be the snow because there's no way it was the amazing homemade pizza I made because that was delicious. <laughs> was, was it yellow snow? Were they watching I... where the huskies go? <laughs> <laughs> they, they found a bunch of little deer poop pellets. They're like, ooh, it's raisinets. 
Eat them all. It's candy from the gods. <laughs> hey, we're both drinking yeast poop right now. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Touche, Jesse. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. Um, I love thinking of it that way, too. That's awesome. Uh, so the, the new year for me is starting off a little bit, you know, slow and kind of. But this episode is going to be amazing because it's jam packed full of goodness. Starting it off is I Dream of Jesse, which is always amazing. And let me tell you guys. Episode 9, The Lesser Magic of Jackson Galaxy is amazing. It's it's a lot of fun. And I cannot believe you busted out the C word on it. <laughs> I cannot. I never thought I would hear coming from you. I was shocked. <laughs> so a bit of a spoiler. But, uh, you know, you have to prepare yourself for stuff like that. <laughs> it threw me for a loop. I, I can't understand why women don't like that word. It's kind of a cute word, I think. <laughs> it is yeah. a cute word. I mean, oh, vagina you... sounds all Latin and medical. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm getting this really inappropriate image of uh, bedroom talk. <laughs> okay, well, in the Infernal Informant moving off of the C word, <laughs> Europeans united in hating Europe. And uh, I don't know, is that Loser Paul? <laughs> Loser Paul? A uh, rival put a Caribbean hex on me, which is awesome. <laughs> and then uh, we have a bit of an Old Nick Peep show for you. Uh, episode four, I talked to the senior editor, Warloth Zothamog. I'm sorry, man. Zothamog. And we uh, sort of just talk about how he got involved with Old Nick um, in the beginning of his involvement, which would then indicate why he got... Okay, I just fucking ruined this entire beginning of the show! Um, anyway, I talked to him, and it's awesome, even though <laughs> I'm not. And the creature feature, I talked with um, Monsieur... I don't know why I just added a fucking French beginning to his name. Uh, Robert Merciless of Rabid Crow. And this was actually inspired by one of the listeners who asked me about Rabid Crow. And I answered them, and I thought, hey, you know what? Why don't I talk to Rabbit Crow? So that's what I did, and this is the result. This is my yeast poop alcohol for you. Creature <laughs> feature this month. Um, all right, so I have been getting a lot of correspondence from you guys, uh, from you listeners. Thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. I had one where uh, a gentleman, and this was, I actually got this uh, last year, a couple months ago, maybe a month and a half ago, where he wanted me to talk about more army experiences that I had as as, a, as an open Satanist, I should say. And so I'm just going to throw out one or two of them here at the beginning. And, you know, I, I was going to try to frame this into like a nine cents. Inter, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me today. <clears throat> I was going to do it like a nine cents letters or something, but it wasn't really formulating into anything when I was trying to do it. And if it doesn't come naturally, then it probably isn't going to work at all. So I figure I'll just throw out a couple of the experiences that I had as a Satanist. And um, this individual is actually joining the military. So thank you for your service. Uh, it's always appreciated. And, you know, for me, so I'm sorry, Jesse, you might just have to sit here for a minute and just crack wise. And just laugh at you? A second. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not with, I noticed you said, at. <laughs> this is nice. Um, oh, hey, before I get started in this, uh, next week is going to be the Get to Know the Voices of Nine Cents, starting with uh, me interviewing myself, or Aaron interviewing me, 
And it's going to be uh, next week, January 12th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you have an opportunity to tune in and watch that, that'd be awesome. You can comment back live. And if you don't have time, well, hey, you've got a life to live. I don't blame you. Uh, I will be packaging it up and releasing it on the website and on the YouTube page um, for your mocking commentary, I am sure. Uh, and some later date. So, uh, the army experiences a Satanist. Um, I, I remember distinctly, uh, I was in advanced individual training, which is sort of the second tier of training when you go into the military, where you actually learn the job you're going to do in the military. So I was in Augusta, Georgia, um, Fort Gordon, a beautiful, beautiful state. I absolutely love it. And there was this, um, I think he was Trinidadian. I don't know why I just threw it out that very oddly specific, <laughs> nationality, but I'm pretty sure that's where he was from, Trinidad. Um, what are they called? Chaplain. And he was asking, okay, you know, we cover all of these different religions, and he sort of named off a couple of them. It's sort of a an introducing you to the base and where you can find your support as far as faith goes. And so uh, everyone is just, you know, just trying not to fall asleep, let's be honest, because we're done with training and, and we're just exhausted and we have tons of these stupid briefings to get through without, you know, falling asleep. Um, so no one's really paying attention. Everyone's kind of like, you know, hazy. And he says, does anyone, in very broken English, it was really entertaining. It's so hard to understand what the fuck he was saying. Does anyone here have a religion that I didn't speak to? And so I was like, fuck it, yeah, um, raised my hand. I mean, I added myself in basic training, and so I didn't think that this would be any different in, in AIT. And so I raised my hand, and he's like, what religion are you? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm actually a Satanist. Do you have anything that would work for me? <laughs> and he was like, uh, 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 like completely like mouth on the floor, just <laughs> shocked that there was the devil present in his Christian room. And he was uh I don't think you're going to be able to find any support for your religion. I was like, well, that's, that's obviously a, a fair statement. Thanks. And everyone, like, I thought his reaction was strange. But as soon as I got out, like, obviously everyone kind of looks the same. Everyone has shaved heads. You're wearing the same uniform, BDUs. Y'all look the same, pretty much. And so I just literally looked like a faceless, shaved-headed white guy. And I had multiple people coming up to me. Did you see who the Satanist was? Did you see who said that? It's unbelievable <laughs> that they're, they're allowed to even work. This is horrible. Do you believe we have to share barracks with these people? <laughs> it was me! I'm the one that said it, you idiots! And so I just, you know, just kind of smiled. Yeah, I can't believe it. It's shocking. I hear he has 666 tattooed on his finger, too. Oh, my gosh. So people would freak the fuck out. And then it finally got around that it was me... And, I, you know, I do actually have 666 tattoo on my finger. And so this big black guy, Doss, who we actually ended up being really great drinking buddies, like came stomping up to me because I guess he has a Christian background and he was the only one brave enough to confront me about it. He's like, let me see your finger. He, it was so funny because when he laughed, he sounded exactly like Scooby-Doo. Just side note for the dude. He, but I do I love the guy. He was awesome. Um, he walks up. He's like, I hear you got 666 on your finger. Let me see, man. I was like, all right, cool. you know, here, this is what it looks like. He's like, that's a tattoo. That You ain't born into that. You ain't no devil. I was like, I never fucking said I was. What are you talking about? I, I, I got to gotta interrupt and ask, which finger? Okay, so it's my uh, left hand middle finger. So when, he's, when people say, can I see the finger, do you flip them off? <laughs> no, I usually just drop my index finger. And let them okay, because I mean, it, you're, you're set up. <laughs> here for it that. is, motherfucker. <laughs> no, I'm a little nicer than that, especially uh, when it's a big ass black guy doing it. 
<laughs> so, I mean, let's be honest. I was, I was even scrawnier than I am now, which is still pretty scrawny. Um, so, you know, I mean, that connection actually, you know, made us friends for the entirety of our stay at uh, the training, which was awesome. You know, he's a really great person. And he introduced me to gin and juice, which up until that point I was ignorant of. And it's delicious. And I drank him under the table. Thank you. End of story. <laughs> Pause for laughter and clapping. Yay! Um, yeah. <laughs> so another uh, training incident where you have to march everywhere in the military. So you march to your classes and then you march your way back to classes and then to chow halls and stuff like that. And they have you set up on sort of different shifts. So you have your morning shift, evening shift, and swing shift because you have to rotate so many people through one base at a time. And... Um, so we were marching. I don't know why. I have no idea why that's relevant to the story. I just decided to tell you. Um, so we were marching to training one day. We were all really exhausted. It's it's summer and it's Georgia and it's marching. It's hot as shit outside. And so we're drenched in sweat. And it's just something you kind of you come to expect. I don't know if your experience of Georgia or the South, um, but you know you just you get out of the shower and you're sweaty. So you just kind of get used to it and it's just like sort of par for the course. So I get to um, the the training base where we're learning about radios, which is my specific MOS when I was in 31U. And um, one of the instructors overheard me sort of mocking one of the Christians there because they were trying to say that I was going to hell. And I was like, well, you're you're actually very sinful yourself. I hear you talking about how badass you are and that's pride and that's a sin. So if anyone's going to be going to hell, it's you. I don't even fucking believe in hell. And he was getting all upset that he was the one going to hell and not me in my perspective. And then the um, instructor heard me. He was like, hey, hey, you come here, come here. Another black guy, completely irrelevant, just telling you. Um, and he's like, you like that uh, that kid that, that bombed that federal building, right? I'm like, what? <laughs> no, what? So he was like trying to like match me up with McVeigh. Like I, like Maybe he, he was thinks all sad- white people look alike. <laughs> That's what it was too. That racist bastard. <laughs> I was like, no, he wasn't a Satanist. That has nothing to do with Satanism. That, not, not at all. He's like, you're not welcome in the military. This is bullshit. And this is after we were forced to sit through hours of, um, non-discriminatory, uh, training. Like, Fucking, we had to go through all this, and then the first thing out of his mouth is discriminatory to me. And so I, I'm not I'm not one to really bitch and whine about everything. But I didn't want to go through this with this asshole sort of... And, and this is actually one of the reasons why I didn't have it put on my uh, dog tags that I'm a Satanist. Because no matter how open-minded people are, there's still bigotry involved. And so if it comes time for you to be promoted over someone that's of equal intelligence and skill as you, well, they're going to choose the one that they're more comfortable with. And if I'm a Satanist, then it's probably not me. And so I kept it sort of, you know, I, I didn't hide it. I admitted it to it when it was relevant, but I didn't go boasting about it. I didn't, you know, have stars on my forehead or I, I wasn't trying to be, you know, crazy about it. Just being open and honest, you know, kind of who I am. Um, and so I went to the drill sergeant. And I was like, look, I want you to know that I'm being discriminated against. I don't want anything to happen, but I would appreciate if you could just, you know, kind of pull him aside and say, stop being a dick to this student because it's, it's offensive. And uh, so they end up getting like all these um, 
sensitivity training NCOs involved and they like pulled me over to the side and they're like, would you like to press any charges on him? Or would you like us to, you know, remove him from the training? I was like, no, I don't, it's nothing like that. I just, I don't want him to talk shit to me for no fucking reason. When he's speaking out of ignorance, I just want to go through the course like everyone else. You know, I don't want him to, to hate on me because I'm a fucking Satanist. And, and you could argue that it's my fault for bringing it out, but shut the fuck up. So they, uh, Agreed. And that was sort of it. And the reality is uh, about the majority of situations like this that you're going to encounter if you ever go into the military or if you ever out yourself over people who are uh, uncomfortable is that they will never be okay with who and what you are. But as long as you're good at what you do, they're going to work with you. Like they'll look over their personal butt hurt and you know, you will be able to get through what you need to get through in the military specifically. It's not that big of, and, and, you know, there's always this notion running through the back of everyone's head is that if I don't like this person, I really only have to be here until I get new orders to go somewhere else. So it's not that long. So you put up with a lot of really asshole people, religion be damned. Um, but you know, expect because if you're out as a Satanist, you will get much more attention and you're going to attract people who want to put you on a pedestal and you're going to attract people who want to drag you down. And surprisingly, both of those are more common than people who just don't care. And they're just like, it doesn't fucking matter to me. So keep that in mind for you who wrote me. I appreciate it. And that was, that was a long way going to get to (laughs) the I dream of Jesse segment. That was interesting though. Have you ever outed yourself to anyone and gotten any weird reactions? Uh, the only person who knows is my husband and he kind of hasn't ever asked about it. So. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could be weird, but do you ever well, like he, want him to ask? You're like, Hey, look at this. Uh, bathroom. Well, no, I mean, when I told <laughs> him, I kind of gave him just like a, a brief overview of it and you know, he's never had any interest in religion. So this is just like, yeah, okay, it's one more thing. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's shockingly awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. Um, all right. Well, I, I wish uh, everyone else to be like that. That's fucking awesome. I choose indifference over uh, fascination or revulsion any day. <laughs> That's just me. I think that's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, how about we start the show? You want to you wanna do yeah. this thing? Okay. All right, cool. I dream of Jesse. Jesse. What do you want? Well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to dress me as master. I, I am your master after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master. That's better. Now look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What do I look like, a belly dancer? Oh, I, I assume that was part, I mean, the outfit, it, it kind of suggests that you may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle, he forgot to add the preservatives. Now the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. You don't like it, call the number on the bottle and complain. There have been a few times now where I've found myself watching Animal Planet's My Cat from Hell, starring Jackson Galaxy. Let me quickly say I do not recommend the show. It's another of these reality TV shows where you follow someone around while he does his job. Working is more interesting than watching others work. 
But if I see it flipping through channels, I tend to get hooked because I like cats, plain and simple. If you hate cats, bear with me because this episode is not about cats. Now, since I'm referencing a show but not recommending it, let me just present a typical episode so you get the idea of what goes on without having to watch it. The setup will be something like a 30-ish woman who gets kicked out of the house by her parents and then taken into a foster home is now out on her own, and she finds a stray cat. She takes it in, she thinks it's fake calling, she tries to care for the cat. Enter the fiancé, who can't stand the cat because the damn thing hisses and growls and attacks him at every opportunity. He's planning on breaking off the engagement unless she gets rid of the cat. The woman is heartbroken, but she can't give up on the cat because her foster parents didn't give up on her. Now enter Jackson Galaxy, our host, who teaches both the woman and her fiancé how to manage the cat's behavior so that she can keep the cat and he can marry the woman he loves. There's always a happy ending. As I said, I watched the show for the cats, not the storyline. But in watching, I couldn't help but notice Jackson's use of lesser magic. Here's something Jackson does not do. He does not train cats. For the most part, it seems he's dealing with people who have other issues going on in their lives and for whom the cat's unwanted behavior is just one more thing they don't want to have to deal with. So what does he do? Well, Jackson gets his clients to see the cat's behavior as a reaction to the stimulus his clients are providing. He insinuates his clients have control over the situation and guides them on what they can do to successfully bring about the desired cat behavior. Lastly, he keeps the focus on the cat. In short, he misdirects. Watch what the cat is doing. Great, now say something in a soft, friendly voice. Great, now watch how the cat reacts. Isn't this amazing? Okay, now, now dangle the cat toy over his head. See how he leaps for it? Are you seeing what this cat is doing? Do you hear him purring? Isn't this great? Keep watching the cat. Never mind it's your behavior I'm changing. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Just watch the cat. Jackson Galaxy trains people. I can only hope for the cat's sake that the lessons stick when the episode ends. Before we get off the subject of cats completely, which we will, cat haters, I promise, let's look at why Jackson's magic works. Most people believe they are right until, and sometimes even after, they are proven wrong. Most also believe they are smart. Smarter than average, in fact, though it's statistically impossible for most people to be smarter than average. And most people don't see themselves as animals. This attitude, on the one hand, gives cats a free pass because they're lesser life forms and we shouldn't expect as much of them. It also gives people the illusion of superiority and the ability to control these lesser life forms. Jackson exploits these attitudes, misdirects with a furry feline, and improves people's behavior, directly with his clients on the show and indirectly with his viewers at home. Pretty admirable, I think. Now let's stop talking cats and start talking people. Most people are cunts. And dealing with them can decrease the amount of pleasure you experience in your short time in this life. Wouldn't you agree that anything you can do to mitigate that situation is worth at least examining? Well, how about employing the Jackson Galaxy method of lesser magic? Here's how. As I said, Jackson's magic works because people believe they are right, they are smart, and they are not animals. When I say people, I mean all of us. Maybe not to a man, maybe some of you listening are able to completely avoid such foibles. But ask yourself if you honestly never feel right when you're wrong, or believe yourself smarter than someone who turns out to be smarter than you, or superior to some member of the herd who, despite his inferiority, has all you want in life. I'm not saying the attitude that I'm right, smart, and not an animal is correct. I'm saying I believe it to be the default in human nature. 
It's an attitude we'd all do well to fight within ourselves, but it's one we fall back on when we don't pay attention. So why not use our own nature to our advantage? There's a difference between what you understand to be correct when you're thinking about it objectively and what you feel to be correct when you're too busy to engage in critical thinking. And you won't always be thinking critically. Personally, I like the fact that I become so focused as to go back to default thinking on all but what I'm working on. I don't care if this means I'm thinking and acting like the herd while I do this. Asking yourself, what would Satan do, can be a great exercise for dealing with difficult situations, but I wouldn't want to be doing it every minute of every day. I like the fact that I can become so engrossed in a task that if someone sneezes nearby, I still occasionally say, God bless you, out of habit. Is that satanic thinking? No. Is it satanic living? I would say yes, because never do I feel more alive than when I'm that far in the zone that I unthinkingly fall back on old habits. So, do you ever feel like you're right, smart, and better than most? Great! So here's how to deal with cunts. First, Understand that most of a cunt's behavior is just a reaction to whatever stimulus you're providing. He may start something with you, but unless you're giving him some reason to keep going, he's going to move on to bother somebody else. Realizing that, you will see that you have control over the situation. Try to portray a sort of friendly indifference, like slowing down and backing off a car that's just cut you off as if you had purposefully let them in, or smiling and shrugging and making noncommittal responses like, hmm, I hadn't thought about that, when someone tries to provoke an argument. Try speaking in a soft, friendly voice. The trick is to focus on the other person's reactions, placating them until they change their behavior, or go off seeking someone else who will give them the conflict they crave. Focus on their reaction until you've brought about the desired behavior. I could be wrong about this, of course. Lord knows I've done some pretty stupid things in my dealings with other people over the years. But I do find that a lot of my frustration stems from a silly notion I sometimes get that other human beings can and should understand and care about what matters to me. It would be great if I could always remember we're all just animals, then maybe I'd get along with people as well as I get along with cats. But I don't always remember. So I found use in the habit of friendly indifference and placation, coupled with a sense of control over the situation. When I'm in the middle of something, I don't want to be interrupted, especially by someone being a cunt. But if a brief shift in focus minimizes the interruption, increasing the amount of pleasure I'll experience in my short time in this life, then that's what I'll do. Allowing myself a brief feeling of superiority and control may not be the best way to deal with all people, but it's not a bad habit to default to either. And hey, sometimes that feeling of superiority turns out to be true. Here we go. Hey, what's going on with that? Uh, Infernal Foreman. Get on the truck. You out there. Okay, this is uh, from the New York Times op-ed, Europeans United in Hating Europe. Uh, London. It's, it may seem bizarre that four, I'm sorry, it may seem bizarre that two far-right nationalist politicians, oh, and I should start out by saying there's a lot of names in here. I, if I mispronounce them, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> They're all bizarre. listening. 
<laughs> it may seem bizarre that two far-right nationalist politicians, Marine Le Pen of France and Geert Wilders of the Netherlands, have reached across the borders to form a pan-European group dedicated to weakening the European Union. Their aim is a transnational political alliance that would compete in the May elections for the Europe the European Parliament. Once in power, they would cooperate to rein in the powers of Brussels. Are these politicians who share an opposition to immigration and a skepticism about the free flow of labor and capital across the continent simply hypocritical opportunists, as many Europeans of the left believe? Perhaps. But in fact, since the early 20th century, Europe's far-right nationalists have often united in search of an other to oppose, exclude, resist, restrict, or oppress. Historically, minorities like Jews, homosexuals, and the disabled, Roma, Marxists, and more recently Arabs, Africans, and Asians. What emerged after World War I was a philosophy that could be called Euro-fascist. The, the most extreme proponents, of course, were the Nazis. Notwithstanding their doctrine of racial supremacy, even they formed alliances with Mussolini's Italy and the militarists of Japan and found keen, and found keen fascist collaborators in nations they invaded. This vision did not die with the end of World War II. Transnational links among right-wing parties based on common fears of minorities and immigrants endured. The right-wingers, while speaking different languages, borrowed ideals, strategies, slogans, and theorists from one another. The National Front in France, founded in 1972 by Ms. Le Pen, by, Le, by her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, imitated the symbol and political tactics of the original neo-fascist party, the Italian Social Movement, which was formed in 1946 by admirers of Mussolini, and in 1979 coordinated with like-minded French and Spanish parties to compete with little success in the first popular elections for the European Parliament. So when observers marvel about the new nationalist parties of Europe, they are capturing only part of the truth. These right-wingers mistrust or even detest the continent's core co institutions the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the European Parliament, but they are perfectly happy to join up with extremists in other countries to weaken those institutions. Which raises the question, what makes the European Union so appealing as a target? The answer may and should shock complacent left-leaning and center-right Europeans alike. Europe, as an idea and a community, has weakened. The European Union's Byzantine governance makes it unaccountable, makes it seem unaccountable. Unaccountable. Its leaders, notably uh, Jose Manuel Barroso of Portugal, the president of the European Commission, the Union's executive body, Herman van Rompuy of Belgium, the president of the European Council, which comprises the 28 heads of, of government, and Catherine Ashton, the Union's top dipl diplomat, are all known outsider, are little known outside of elite circles. Soaring youth unemployment, stringent fiscal policies, German-led monetary clout, and the presence of Muslim immigrants have created a perfect target for the likes of Mr. Wilders and Ms. Le Pen, who blame outside forces like the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the European Union for their nation's woes. Conveniently, they overlook the structural problems like cost of social welfare and pension programs, declining birth rates, aging populations, stagnant labor productivity, and intensifying competitions from the economies of Asia and Latin America. How long is this article? <laughs> it is. Like you're <laughs> I, I can hear the <gasps> like getting ready to go. Alright, I mean we don't we don't have to yeah. do the rest of this. Um I mean it's essentially it's an op-ed about an individual who fears a disintegration of the European Union um, by this 
potential uh, of another party being formed that has that as a, a, a goal or a potential goal. Mm-hmm. Since it's not an official party uh, as of yet, it seems. Um, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, is is to you? Obviously, we're Americans, so we're already infidels. But you know, for argument's sake, let's say we're mildly intelligent. Um, do you think that it's it's okay to have a right, an extreme right wing party in politics? <laughs> um, oh. In something as large as the European Union, having a voice. Somehow I think asking if it's okay is not asking the right question. I think it's inevitable. Actually, you said it earlier, and I'm going to misquote you, but it was something like, no matter how open-minded people are, there's always going to be bigotry. Yeah. And people are tribal. And when you start saying, okay, we're going to throw all the tribes in together and everybody's got to get along and follow the same rules... The tribalism doesn't just go away. And especially when it's not, you know, like people aren't necessarily prospering. Mm -hmm. You know, people are going through austerity measures. So they look for somebody to blame and hey, hey, they've just mixed up all the tribes. And we've those that's those they aren't part of our tribe. Why are they getting money? It's just inevitable. It's an interesting it's an interesting test, it seems to me, to see if you can take um, thousands of year old cultures, combine them into one um, European Union, and then see how long it'll last. I mean, that's like the best test of human compatibility you could possibly imagine. Um, and, you know, they, they bring up comparisons to the Tea Party, where if this group does uh get voted in or become a, a voice that it is going to dismantle uh, part or all of uh, what has been worked for for so long with this European Union. And I guess, you know, we're, we're talking abstracts here because this article does, but we're talking a little bit about the idea of, is it possible for people to put aside uh, their sense of identity in a situation that in, you know, on paper makes it look like everyone has fair opportunity. Meanwhile, you can't get a job or your your state is spending so much on social security styled social welfare um, programs that they're, they're not able to balance their budgets individually and, and it requires everyone to try to work together. Um, is it worth continuing this sort of experiment i mean I, I from us from our point you know we come into this and i don't want to speak for you i come into this with an american framework of mind we do not have as long of a history as a people as these individual states do and so <clears throat> their roots run much deeper than mine do but i would never I would not be okay with being at the mercy of an institution countries away for my sense of welfare. That that would bother me as an individual. Um, and that also could come from a position of, well, you're an American, so you affect everyone, so it's easy to have that sort of righteous indignation. But it seems like something that I, I would not be okay with. And so I can completely understand how you would have small groups banding politically together to break apart these uh, unions that that are 
seen as a really negative thing in the blue collar level, you know? I recently listened to a debate on, you know, hypothetically a North American union. And I started out not really knowing which side of this I was going to fall on. Um, But the arguments presented, they really portrayed it as a meritocracy. If there's no borders, anybody can hire anybody else. The best people get the jobs. And and everybody's on their own, kind of. So by the time they finished the debate, and they kind of had the audience vote on, you know, who, who had the better arguments, by that point, I was not, I wouldn't, like, say I was, jumping for joy at the prospect of a North American Union. It actually sounded kind of scary, but it also sounded like it would be a good thing, you know? But overwhelmingly, the audience was opposed to it. And most people had started out kind of indifferent, you know, not really knowing which side, and just overwhelmingly, people were opposed to it. And I think it because it because they pretty much came down to, you know, the best people are going to get the jobs, not Americans. Yeah, unless the best people happen to be American, but nobody was saying that was going to be the case. Yeah, and statistically, it's not the case. <laughs> I mean, uh, as as a country, we are not doing well. We we think we are. We raise our fists to the sky, shouting, you know, USA number one. But in reality, we are not. So, in in a situation like that, if you're going to latch on to a an idea of nationality as a sense of self, then man we would be doing ourselves a big disservice and and it it does sort of make you and this is what i love about this discussion in this article specifically it, it makes you look at yourself and say well who am i am i an individual of the world that you know is is trying to make my way or first and foremost am i a nationality and it's hard i think at least for me, and, and probably because of the way I was raised um, by veterans primarily, it's hard to disassociate myself. Did that come out? <laughs> With being an American. Like, I would not be able to say, okay, well, if it's a North American union, um, then it's not as important where you're from. Your sense of national pride is no longer as powerful, though that could be argued. Um and, and suddenly you're thinking, well, it's up to me to be the best me, and then I will be number one. But there's also something in the back of my head, which I dig. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of meritocracy. Um, I, there is something in the back of my head that says, well, what about? You know, what, what about the sacrifices that those that came before me? What, what about my, my own family lineage? Uh, me, 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 you know, saying, well, if, if I do become a world citizen and I'm on my own two feet, what about those that I have held so dear? Does, does it, does it denigrate their, their memory by, by not standing on America's side as much as I did before? It's, it's, it's a strange notion to me. And maybe I'm looking too in too much into it. I, I tend to do that, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, think of myself as much as of an American as it sounds like you do, but I do look at something like this as, you know, in a very selfish way of how's it going to affect my lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And I see it as kind of probably 
widening the gap between rich and poor, kind of stretching things out even more than they're stretched out in this country now. And I got to say, I mean, if the middle class were to disappear in the United States, I have no illusions that I would be in the upper class. You know, if that if the, if the middle drops out, I'm going to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am leery of anything that might destroy the middle class in the United States. I really am. Yeah. And and do you think that the a Europe, an American uh, union would do that? I think it could happen even without one. But yeah, that would definitely push it in that direction. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly on the path now. Uh, yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, fucking awesome. Let's uh, let's move on to this next one. Yeah, because this, this next York- one's fun. Oh, this is great. <laughs> this is the New York Post by Julia Marsh. Rival put a Caribbean hex on me. Uh, arrival of Melissa Mark Viverito. Filed, and I'm with you, I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing any of this right, uh, filed a multi, I'm sorry, a million dollar lawsuit against the front runner for city council speaker, claiming she put a Caribbean hex on her while the two were running for the same council seat in the form of black magic mural on her building. Gwen Goodwin, 52, who spectacularly lost the Democratic Party to Mark Viverito in September, says her nemesis targeted her East 100th Street building as the canvas for a five-story image of a bodiless rooster atop wooden poles. Um, Before I continue on this very short article, it's a beautiful mural, I think. Oh, it's gorgeous. I love it. Okay, so the head is just below the window of her apartment, where Goodwin has lived since 1997. Uh, Mark Viverito is expected to be voted in as next city council speaker on Thursday. According to neighbors of Puerto Rican and other backgrounds in the Caribbean culture, this constituted a curse and a death threat, as the swastika or a noose would symbolize typically to many Jews or African Americans, Goodwin alleges in a Manhattan Supreme Court suit she filed Friday. Many New York Puerto Ricans practice a hybrid religion called Santeria, which is based in Catholicism but includes voodoo-like ceremonies and animal sacrifices. East Harlem even boasts a specialty shop dedicated to the re- I'm sorry, religion called Justo Botanica at East 104th Street in Lexington Avenue. Mark Viverito was the head of the urban art campaign last uh, launched last summer called Los Muertos Hablan, The Walls Speak, in translation. Uh, the effect celebrates Latin or Latino culture by painting murals on walls across the five boroughs. She partnered with Goodwin's landlord, Eastside Managers Associates, for the East Harlem Project, which was dedicated on September 1st. But Goodwin claims her rival's motives were pure evil. This is like the fruits of the devil. Evil. Uh, This is supposed to be a professional politician who came and graffitied the side of my building, Goodwin told (laughs) the Post. I really felt that people needed to understand who they were giving power to as the next most powerful person behind the mayor of New York City, she said. Mark Viverito has also faced criticism for taking taxpayer subsidies meant for low and moderate income New Yorkers for an interest-free mortgage, even though her net worth is estimated at more than $1.5 million. Goodwin said she endured emotional distress from the alleged spell that detracted her, <laughs> distracted her from running a winning campaign. This intimidated me and caused me fear. I'm a Christian. I don't believe outside my religion, but strange things were happening, Goodwin claimed. 
She said that she suddenly got a blood clot in her foot and that a close friend began acting crazy right after the mural went up. The landlord did not return calls for comment. Aaron Koch, a spokesman for the councilwoman, blasted the suit. These desperate and ridiculous allegations by a failed political opponent of Melissa are false, absurd, and a waste of the court's precious time. It's sad, but expected, that Melissa's opponents are resorting to these kind of tactics, Koch said. <laughs> I want this to be true. I don't know what that mural means, but I so want it to be a curse. <laughs> it, but it does give you that, and this is something that, um, in uh, The Devil's Notebook and The Satanic Bible, it is constantly reinforced, this idea that religious people will find meaning and power, and in this case, intentional or not, in a curse. And they they will, you know, you can just sit back and let it happen, and they will ruin their lives for it. And I don't, and here's here's the thing, because, you know, this is sort of hindsight 2020 that she's responding to this. I, it would be interesting to see how she reacted during the campaign when she saw her numbers going down, if she was blaming it on the big-ass mural on the side of her building, or if this is just, you know, in the end, she's still just trying to fight for anything. So whether she believes it or not, I guess, is the point of what I'm trying to get to. Um, but it's it's amazing that the the people will even if they claim like she does I don't believe outside of my religion but she, yeah. I mean they will eat up what you do and and that's why when you're talking about greater magic it is so powerful and that's why the doctor was so insistent that you have to be in on it you have to be have your heart 100% into what you're doing because it can give results whether or not uh, your workings in the chamber results, you know, she, they may come back afterward and blame you. So you have to be prepared for that. Uh, if you're going to go in the chamber and, and do anything like that. Um, amazing. What do you think of this? I, this is just, I want to draw out this mural on things. <laughs> <laughs> we need, we need it a, for people and let them get all paranoid about it. <laughs> we need a professor of Santeria here. We need <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about this. It really is a beautiful mural. I mean, it's colorful. It's it's vibrant. On and the side it is of this kind of a mean last looking bird, too. I mean, I could see where this would be kind of a curse. I mean, it doesn't look like a friendly face on a bird. You know, it, it, it really doesn't. And then now that we're talking, I'm starting to see some shit in this bird. Look at that. Are you looking at it right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so everyone... Uh, just Google rival put a Caribbean hex on me and you'll you'll see this picture. At the very bottom left, you have these two yellow feathers. Yep. Alone that could almost look like an eye, like eyes. Oh, and like yeah. sort of like menacingly and like this nose off to the left there. Like it could I could see how she would see this as menacing. I mean the bird itself, like you mentioned, could look scary. <laughs> <laughs> don't just take it for art's sake. But then I also see that sort of like, I don't know if it, it's like a person controlling the bird underneath it or if I'm just looking at it and it's just a, a remnant of my imagination, which probably is, let's be honest. Um, I could totally see this as like a cartoon character sort of having this bird hat on or something. It's very funny looking. The more I look at this, the more I'm seeing. All right. No, you know what? I'm guilty. I think this is a fucking curse. <laughs> The more I look at this, it it has to be, there has to be some meaning into this. I would love to talk to the artist. We yeah, got to find the artist. I, I, I would like to know what this 
actually if it means something or if somebody just sketched it out and I don't know which would be funnier actually I mean if it if it truly means something and was done deliberately if sneakily or <laughs> if it would be more funny if just somebody who has like little interest in Caribbean culture to begin with just sketched it out one day and won a contest for this best sketch and <laughs> it means nothing <laughs> That would be amazing. And that's actually probably what it is, to be fair, but that would be amazing. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, uh, audience, go look at it for yourself and tell us what you think. Uh, up next, Old Nick Peep Show. Welcome to another Old Nick Peep Show. It's the only segment that delivers beautiful women, masculine men, and intriguing information on all things Old Nick. Joining us, as always, is the senior editor, Warlock Zothamog. How are you, my man? I'm doing well, thank you, Adam. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you again. It is winter, and last time we spoke, we alluded to the new issue coming out soon. The season dictates that it should. But you know what? Because it's not out yet... I think maybe we should table that for another month. Maybe we could talk, because we have you here, uh, all by your lonesome, maybe we could talk a little bit about you and, and your role in Old Nick. Now, I know we've gone over this briefly in the past, sort of, uh, you know, talking about uh, what you bring to the table and stuff, but maybe we can dive a little bit more, or maybe shed a little more light on that subject. So, uh, Zoth, uh, can you tell me how you first came, uh, came to Old Nick? Well, interestingly enough, I was introduced to um, Bob Johnson through Marilyn Mansfield, who was um, who modeled for him first and met through him at um, an event out in L.A. that she did. And, you know, she spoke to him about me. And obviously, um, you know, we we conversed online at first about, you know, things that I can do to help out with the magazine. And then from from that point on, sort of my responsibilities with the company increased you know at first i just started helping out with the the social media aspect of old nick doing like the facebook page and the twitter page and updating the website and stuff like that but you know slowly as um more tasks were delegated towards me um and i proved myself being able to do such things i began writing articles and you know scouting um scouting for, you know, potential models and, you know, bands that I felt that perhaps would be uh, good inclusions in the magazine. And, you know, from that point on, it just kind of grew as a natural progression. Can you give us a little bit of uh, a background on, on your individual talents? I mean, were, were you ever, I mean, did you ever want to be a writer? Did you want to ever want to be an editor? <clears throat> well, you know, interestingly enough, I did uh, work for Fangoria magazine you know, prior to getting involved with Old Nick. So a lot of my background is from there. I was the webmaster at Fangoria, and I also wrote a blog, a music blog for them. So um, uh, not something that I always wanted to do. It's just kind of something that I always did on the side, you know, as um, 
a musician myself, I'm always interested in seeking out new bands, new kinds of music. And I always like anything that has, you know, a dark aesthetic to it, whether it be, you know, the most extreme form of music to the most, you know, epic classical music. You know, if it's if it's really dark, it always appeals to me. So that was something that I've always been involved in, whether it be, you know, writing for Fangoria or just something on my own where I always just like absorbing things like a sponge. Every time I saw it, I was just like, yes, yes, I need this. I need this. It's the natural thing from old Nick where I was just like, you know, I, I just, it seemed like a, a, a natural thing for the magazine to have. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved with Fangoria, if you don't mind me asking? Um, let's see. That that started off actually just as a, a um, as a contract gig doing a new website for them. At the time when, when I became involved with Fangoria, I was working for another company who was contracted to update their website and update all of their, their social media. Their website was pretty, I guess, primitive at the time, and we were bringing them up to date and giving them more online presence with the creation of Fangoria Radio, Fangoria TV, Fangoria Music, just branching them out into all different aspects of, of, of it instead of it just being Fangoria.com. Yeah. You know? And, you know, we built all those websites and, you know, we, you know, <clears throat> convinced them this was the wave for the future. This is what you need to do. You know, we built them uh, back then. It was like a MySpace page and we built them, you know, Facebook page and we were involved with their um what was it, the online forums, you know, and yeah. from, the, from that point on, you know, after that contract was completed, they really liked me as an employee and they kept me on as the company that I was previously working for moved on to the next project. I remained behind at Fangoria offices and, you know, ran the website for them. Very it was cool. pretty cool. Yeah, it was a cool gig. I loved it. I mean, who doesn't love Fangoria magazine, you know? Yeah. Well, and what's fantastic is that all those um, skills that you had in helping Fangora branch out. Now you bring to the table to old Nick. Exactly. And that, you know, that was one of the things that Marilyn had mentioned to Bob upon meeting him. She was like, yeah, you know, my husband, he knows how to do all this stuff. And, you know, you should really talk to him. He could really help you, you know, bringing old Nick up to date with, you know, the social media aspect and updating the website. And he was like, oh, really? Okay, well, you know, I'll reach out to him. And then we started conversing and I told him about my background and what I could do to help old Nick's online presence. Because, you know, in this day and age, magazines are, you know, physical paper, you know, things, but it's a, a large part of it is what you do online. It is the digital aspect of it. It is keeping yeah. up with the social media. It is keeping up with the technology. And, you know, that's kind of like what I help bring to the table. You know, whenever I meet with Bob or whenever I speak with him, we're just always brainstorming on what we can do in the future, you know, and that's, that's kind of like a big part of like what, what I do as well as, you know, the actual updates and writing and stuff like that. Would you be comfortable um, maybe doing a little bit of a, a history lesson on Old Nick in your experience? So what what was available on Old Nick prior to your joining the team? And, you know, maybe a brief overview of, of, of what you've done to branch it out. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, what you plan on bringing. Well, when I, when I joined the team, the Old Nick website was kind of how shall I say, it was stagnant. It hadn't been updated in a while. And, 
you know, it was simply for the fact that there was nobody really in charge of doing that. So although, you know, Bob had been um, releasing magazines and, and getting things done, there wasn't someone physically updating the site. So it's it kind of looked like it hadn't been touched for a couple of years. And, you know, that was one of the first things I did is I just went through the entire website and I made sure everything was up to date from the smallest thing like the copyright date at the bottom of the web page to, you know, including social media buttons that'll take you to these things that he had, you know, he had a blog spot and a, I believe he had a Twitter page. And, you know, once again, these things were put in place, but they weren't really updated. So a lot of that stuff I, I immediately jumped on and, and updated. And then from that point on, you know, we began creating the online presence. You know, now Facebook is the big uh, social media giant. So we've created a, a presence on Facebook and we've also expanded outwards, you know, to include um, other websites, um, a little mag cloud where we're printing and, you know, we're doing um, more stuff like we have like the store and we have the triple X editions, you know, all these other uh, digital aspects of the magazine now are, are parts of the things that I help to update and, and keep rolling. Can I ask you about the social media aspect of it quickly? I mean, yeah, you know, sure, obviously, Olding Magazine is a, a gentleman's magazine. It's an adult magazine, definitely. And you do end up having a lot of, you know, family-oriented type people on social media nowadays where they don't <laughs> want to see adult content. Um, and a lot of, you know, social media sites actually block uh, overtly sexual uh, adult content. So is it challenging as an adult magazine to reach out to, to other people, you know, new, uh, new readers, uh, with old Nick? Um, yes, it is. It is challenging, especially when, when you, when the lines are not clearly defined as to what will get you blocked and what will get you suspended and what is permissible and what isn't, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll look on Facebook and I'll see something and I'll be like, Oh my God, I can't believe they just, you know, allowed this to go through. And sometimes, you know, people will get, you know, suspended for the most ridiculous things. So it's, the line is always kind of, there's a gray area there where I think with old Nick, what I try to do is I kind of try to push that area as far as I can every time I do an update just to see, you know, what I can do. But as far as reaching people, it's, it's the greatest thing about social media is that it's like such an intricate web where one person you know, even likes a photo and then everyone on their news feed sees that they like the photo and they go to see it and they're like all of a sudden are into it and they like the page and they tell their friends and it just spreads that way. It's like wildfire all the time. So I think it, it's it's been growing, you know, exponentially on its own easily without really having to do a lot to it besides just update it. Nice. Well, um, before, uh, before we close down the, the conversation here, the the winter issue isn't out yet. Is it still too late to submit um, uh, possible ads or possible content? Um, no, it's it's never too late. You know, we we have like a huge backlog of things that we keep on file. And if you wanna and if you wanna submit for an ad, of course, by all means, come or reach out to us on our Facebook page, which is probably the quickest way to reach me. Um, and we'll definitely, you know, make our best effort to get you in for this next issue that's coming up. 
um, you know, of course, if it's an ad, we're, we're going to put you in there, you know, you're, you're paying yeah. for space. So, you know, we'll, we'll put an extra page in the magazine just to get you in there. <laughs> so, as far as, you know, submitted that, that, you know, that's, that can always be worked out. It all, it all depends upon, you know, what the content is, but yeah, definitely. There's still time. There's always time. That, that's the wonderful thing about working when the, in a digital uh, medium is that, you know, you can always edit things at the last minute, you know, even if we're like, you know, it's not like back in the days where people would yell, stop the presses. And, you know, we had to like, <laughs> you know, reconfigure yeah. the entire page. It's like, no, it's, it's, you know, it's a click of the mouse and it's done and, and it can always be worked around. So yes, yes, definitely. There's time to submit, you know, for ad inclusions in this next issue that's coming out the winter issue. And do you want to throw out that email really quick? Yes. The email is info at odnickmagazine.com. All right. And of course, well, you know, you can always look for us on our Facebook page. That's yeah. always a, a um, quick and easy for people to reach us. Well, and also you have uh, oldnickmagazine.com and then your Twitter, oldnickmagazine. So definitely, uh, audience, get out there and check it out. And if you have something to submit, now's the time to do it. You know, the winter issue is coming uh, here soon. So um, if you want to be included, don't drag your feet any longer. Yeah. Well, I. I think yes. that's going to do it for this old Nick Peep show. Um, we know right. it's never enough, but uh, we always have next month. So, um, Warlock Zothamog, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Campbell. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, until next time, Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by Robert Merciless. We're going to be talking about Rabid Crow arts and graphics, but first a little bit about himself. Robert, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you so much for coming on. I, I was actually um, asked by a listener about your storefront specifically, and I have actually gone to your store a couple times, sort of, you know, kicking the tires, as it were, um, checking out what you have to offer, and you have some really really cool designs, uh, stuff that resonates with well, a lot of people listening to this podcast, for one. Um, Thanks. I hope you bought something. <laughs> well, I haven't yet. <laughs> Keyword well, being yet. Well maybe, well, maybe we'll have to fix that with a special deal or something. Yeah, well, no, I, I was actually looking at um, totally off topic. Well, not really off topic. I was looking at the Satan Thinking shirt, and I, I really, really, really dig that. So that might be my uh, my first dive here. Yeah, into good. It. Um. So, I mean, before we talk anymore, I suppose, about Rabid Crow uh, Storefront and, and, you know, how that came to be and what all you offer, let's talk a little bit about you. Give the audience a little bit of background here. So, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I don't know. I've, I've, I've been a member of the Church of Satan since the late 1990s. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. area and uh, have a typical Washington, D.C day job that pays the bills pretty nicely but uh so this is really kind of an avocation for me mm -hmm. uh the the storefront is it i've been active in the church for 
uh, like I said, since the, the late 1990s, it was uh, kind of one of the troublemakers on alt-Satanism uh, online <laughs> venue from years back. <clears throat> but uh, I've also done a bit of historical work uh, for the church. Uh, one of my articles is about, uh, well, I, I tend to look at, at uh, what I would call the uh, the history of the satanic tradition, that is, uh, de facto Satanists in history. And uh, some of my work, writings on that have been uh, on the Church of Satan website. I've got an article on there about uh, Gisio Carducci, the uh, Italian poet. Uh, and uh, some of my work, I had an article recently about uh, Maria de Naglauska, which uh, uh, was published in uh, Old Nick magazine. So, so a bit of kind of a uh, amateur historian of Satanism, if you will. That's kind of my my avocation that kind of got me into this stuff. That's really cool. It, I, I don't think I don't think a lot of people look back past Anton Lavey for de facto Satanism. Where do these ideas inspire? And so it's really nice to the work that you've done specifically and, and some of the stuff that you've done that's available on the Church of Satan website uh, for review and reading. Uh, it's really nice. And also, I mean, you you had collaborated with Underworld Amusements um, a few years ago, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, Kevin Slaughter uh, graciously uh, took my recommendation that he republish a book by uh, Henry Tishnor. Uh, called the sorceries and scandals of Satan, and uh, and I I wrote a uh, I wrote a uh, forward for that kind of a historical look at that. It's very cool, uh, and and actually I know it went out of print um, a little while ago I think, but it it seems to be available right now. So if the listeners want to check that out, uh, you can always just visit www.movements.net <laughs> and check that book out. Yep, Amazon carries it. It's uh, Sorceries and Scandals of Satan by uh, uh, Henry Tishnor, uh, but you can you can also put in Robert Merciless and it'll come up. <laughs> nice, nice. You also have a, a YouTube video of this, right? Like a, a sort of an introduction or something. And, yeah, the YouTube video is was my my uh, amateurish attempt at a at sort of a, a TV commercial, trying to uh, just try my hand really at, at video making, and it's, it's got some of the images. Uh, from from the shop that uh, I've accumulated over the years and, and been working on kind of as a video uh, intro, you know, if you will. Some people don't want to – if you don't want to browse the website, you can uh, go see the video, I guess. Yeah. Or if you really dig it, then you can just uh, dive into all of it. You can play it over and over all night long if you want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, you, you're obviously just completely uh, – engrossed in this sort of de facto satanic process of, of thought where did where did that come from when when did you first discover satanism well i first discovered satanism in the uh, i don't know around 98 or so 97 uh like most people i, I was uh, kind of disgusted with uh, the religious stuff that I'd been spoon-fed and uh, came across the Satanic Bible and completely recognized my my own worldview uh, in that and and uh, the rest the rest is history as they say um, and uh, and from there on you know I, I thought uh, some of this history work got really kicked off from that as I sort of started uh, delving into, all the historical references that LeVay made in the book. Uh, 
and uh, doing independent research. And what you come to find is that, you know, LeVay, uh, he is unquestionably the inventor and creator of, of modern Satanism, but, you know, he did not invent it from whole cloth. He didn't, he didn't conjure it from thin air. He right. he pulled together these uh, these threads from history, you know, the imagery, the symbolism that had been present in literary traditions, uh, magical traditions, uh, you know, which you know even go back. Uh, you can check the the you know the historical literature of uh, you know there were uh, priests in the Middle Ages of the Catholic Church who were really some of the original uh, ritual magicians and uh, you know it's not hard to understand uh, you know why that is they were dissatisfied with the utter inability of Christianity to actually deliver the goods for them and so uh, they looked to sort of uh, level up if you will in their magical practice <clears throat> so so, yeah, studying those sorts of things kind of led me into the history piece. And then, you know, uh, the other piece is sort of just the practice of satanic magic and that, uh, you know, the, the importance of imagery. Uh, LeVay talks about five ingredients in satanic magic. And one of the central ones is, is imagery. And as I was doing the historical research, I came across uh, these visuals, you know, that uh, uh, most of them from the 19th century, here and there, that, that clearly were inspired by sort of a uh, sinister outlook, either by the love of it or the terror of it. In any case, it it has, on a handful of occasions, led to the creation of these truly gripping visuals. And so uh, I wanted to make sure that those were not lost, that they were uh, captured, and in a lot of almost all cases that I work with them, uh, enhanced uh, to uh, make them suitable for, for fine art reproduction. And also to refine them, to to focus them, and on the central magical aspect of the image. And I could go into the details on that, but that's really kind of what drove me. Wow, wow. Um, at what point did you decide to? And and maybe not at what point, but what prompted you to join the Church of Satan rather than just self-identifying as a Satanist and living your life that way? <laughs> well, I I actually wrote an essay called Why Did I Join the Church of Satan? And uh, <laughs> conjure it up sometimes. It was posted into alt, to alt Satanism. It got, it got reposted here and there. I don't know if it's on the web anymore. I don't think it is. But but uh, basically the, the point I made then, and that's the point that I still make to people today, is that, you know, uh, it's important to understand that uh, joining the Church of Satan gets you absolutely nothing. Yeah. Joining the Church of Satan has to be seen uh, as its own inherently magical act that uh, you, as you kind of suggest here, you know, seeing yourself in the Satanic Bible is one thing. But formally casting your lot in with the devil is yet another. And to do that at the sacrifice of uh, 100 bucks or today 200 bucks, you know, uh, 
that is a that is a, a level of of illustration and commitment that I just thought was uh, was uh, right for me. So it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, just you know prove anything to anyone else, but uh, but it was uh, uh, my own magical act as you know formally and significantly uh, casting my lot with the devil, if you will. Very cool. <laughs> that's that's a great way of, of putting it. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Rabid Crow. Um, what, first and foremost, for definition's sake here, what is Rabid Crow? Well, uh, it, it's, it's, I guess, it's a satanic art store. It's accessible, accessible online uh, via rabidcrow.com. Uh, the the website that I have is rabbitcrow.com, but that that leads you to the primary platform, which is on zazzle.com right now. Um, but then there's also a presence on Spreadshirt, DeviantArt, and and Cafe Press. They're all kind of disparate places that I have the imagery now. It'll eventually get all pulled together under a single uh, a single access point at rabbitcrow.com. But right now it's kind of spread out. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the way I see it is, you know, the primary product is is really wall art. Um, primarily, these are you know fine art digital prints on stretched canvas that you might hang on a wall in in a special place like I don't know a ritual chamber, or a bedroom, or, or even public spaces. Um, now, the, the the images you know are also printed on on things like T-shirts, posters, coffee mugs, decals iPhone covers, green cards, hoodies, stuff like that. Um, but uh, that's that's basically what rabbitcrow.com and the and the and the production platforms produce. Um, there are some original works, uh, but largely what I focus on is resurrecting and in most cases, modifying these historical illustrations, most of them associated with Satan or the satanic tradition in, in some way. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, because this, this has, and right now I'm, I'm actually looking at um, Rabid Crow here, excuse me, on Zazzle, and uh, you, know, you, you have a number of images that are, I mean, you know, just as you said, they're the historical images but they they resonate with just that that wonderful essence of Satan as you know a lot of us grew up with this idea the, the opposer the rebel angel uh, you know the fallen angel um, it's a and I mean just the images itself it's a lot of fun to see um, I, mean, I don't know I mean you know you leave it up to the individual to to choose the format that they want you know these individual designs to go on. Um, but I could easily, yeah, I mean, as you were saying, see this on stretched canvas or, um, you know, as I mentioned at the very top of this, this little discussion here, uh, the, the Satan thinking on a shirt, I think, is just perfect. Yes, yeah, those, it, it's in all those formats, you know. Uh, uh, the Satan thinking uh, is, is an image that probably a lot of people have already seen before. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an 1866 illustration by a... Uh, illustrator, very magical, very effective, named Gustave Doré, who mm-hmm. drew that for a reprinting of Paradise Lost. And, uh, you know, it. Uh, what I do is, I mean, you can get the print in its original form, 
but what I did was uh, I got a very high resolution version of it and uh, carefully lifted the Satan figure from the background. And this is kind of a common thing I've done with several of the works, is where I've taken the central figure and eliminated the background to focus the eye uh, on on the central figure and not be distracted, which kind of creates it in in much more of a, a magical a magical milieu, a more magical setting, and uh, and that's what I did with with Satan thinking. Uh, and yeah, it's a. It can be a T-shirt. It can be a six-foot art poster in your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I really like about this, the concept of your shop here of, of Rabbit Crow, is is that you're, you know, you're not shamelessly stealing artwork and then reprinting it. I mean, you're you're doing this for preservation and and to make it just available. Because otherwise it wouldn't be, and certainly not in the quality that you're offering it. That I mean, I think that's a really important way of seeing this. Is that? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I in some ways I am a shameless thief. Uh, you know, I uh, uh, I I I tend to use uh, public domain images that are out there that have passed over into public domain, but then I, I do spend an immense amount of time uh, digitally uh, polishing them up. Uh, from from the original sources, and uh, so they're a much more refined image. Um, but yeah, I'm, I am not a creative genius. Uh, you know, I find these historical images. I do the work to get the highest quality version possible. I've spent hours in the Library of Congress, uh, hours in the New York Public Library, uh, hours in the London Museum, <laughs> the British Library, I'd say, uh, in, in London, uh, to get to get some of these images and uh, and then I and then I, I work them so so yeah I, I do I am a shameless uh, thief of imagery but I steal <laughs> I steal really good stuff <laughs> only the best that's right and then I polish it up I may be I may be stealing the jewelry but at least I'm stealing good jewelry and I'm really polishing it a lot so uh, yeah I, I can't I can't claim to be a brilliant artist but I know good art when I see it and yeah I go I steal it without without shame <laughs> <laughs> well I mean can you describe for the listeners some of the major works on rabbit crow yeah sure uh, one of the one of the earliest ones I did I call it the satanic goat and uh, uh, I published it uh, years ago in in Matt Paradise's magazine not like most um, but this is a fairly dramatic reworking of uh, the Baphomet illustration that appeared in Eliphas Levy's book in 1854, the uh, ceremony and, uh, and ritual of transcendental magic, one of the one of the pivotal books that launched the French occult revolution, resurrection, I should say. And so this is an 1854 book, and the the front this piece of this book had this image that everybody's probably seen a thousand times reproduced on every uh, crappy occult TV documentary ever. And that's, you know, kind of the, the sure. God, the godlike being with a, a head and legs of a goat and the body of a human and one arm is up and one arm is down. And he's got these bird like wings. He's kind of sitting cross-legged, like I said, one arm up and one arm down. Um, and so this has been, you know, ooh, the evil spooky image for, you know, uh, 150 years. Um, 
uh, and the the symbol of occultism in a lot of ways. But um, the uh, uh, what I did was it with it was a complete reworking. I found actually the high resolution image uh, from a, from one of the original books uh, that was happened to be squirreled away in the back of the U.S. Library of Congress, and and did a complete reworking of it, uh, scanned it, uh, flipped it so that uh, the up arm is now the left arm, not the right. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's then the symbol of the cornu. The hand is now the satanic image. Uh, the the pentagram that Levy put on the forehead now appropriately points downward. The wings are not of a bird, they're of a bat. Um, the solvay at Caligula, Coagula, Tattoos are gone and replaced with you know six 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 tattoos on the beast and just things like that that, that modified it and uh, and so it's uh, if if you thought the first one was scary this one is 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 uh, much more genuinely satanic uh, so it's a reworking <laughs> of I'm sure Levy would as many people as he has horrified with his uh, very cool drawing I'm sure that uh, he would be now equally horrified. That, that I've, I've turned it into something even more uh, more satanic than he ever can, you know, envision. But a, a quick glance at it, you know, I tried to preserve the style of the mid-19th century uh, etching that he did. And so a quick look at it, and it still looks like it's 150 years old. Uh, so, so that's one of the works that that's in there. Um, like I said, uh, there's a couple of you know, Paradise Lost was an inspiration for for uh, a couple of the pieces. Uh, you mentioned the Satan Thinking piece that was Gustave Doré from 1866. Um, one of the other ones in there, one of my favorites, uh, is uh, is a, a picture of Satan and Eve, and that's actually a lift from a William Blake. Uh, engraving from 1795 called Satan Exulting Over Eve, which was which was done for a, an illustration of his in a version of Paradise Lost. And uh, so this is, you know, William Blake is unquestionably one of the de facto Satanist artists from history. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a great admirer of uh, of Milton's uh, uh, work in in writing Paradise Lost back in 1666, and you know it was Blake that said uh, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it, <laughs> and so so here in 1795 Blake uh, does this illustration for uh, a version of Paradise Lost, <clears throat> and uh, this this is an image of of kind of uh, Satan almost in a like a uh, medieval style, very flat, very mm-hmm. iconic, and he's uh, his wings are spread and he's flying uh, in kind of in a prone position, and then prone beneath him is the spread out Eve wrapped in the serpent with the apple rolled out of her hand, and so uh, uh, the original was on sort of this highly decorative background, and I I eliminated all that to bring just the two characters out. Um, and to isolate them. Mm-hmm. So, and both of those, like I said, the Satan thinking and the Satan and Eve piece were both inspired by Paradise Lost. So that's yeah, that's so just like- a couple of them. Uh, there's uh, there's a there's a 
a version of the sigil of Baphomet that I've put together in there that's derived from a, a 1931 version by Oswald Worth, which was an early precursor of the one that you know is used today as the official symbol of the Church of Satan. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a history of about the sigil of Baphomet on the Church of Satan website. Some of that I, I helped write. Uh, and uh, probably fully half of that's based on on my research, but um, uh, the one that I have on my website is a is a reworking of of one of the uh, early precursors uh, by Oswald Worth. So that's what the, so that, that's kind of some of the things you'll see on there. You probably see a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh yeah, uh, for sure. That's some of them. Well, I mean. Because this is sort of, I would imagine, an ongoing process for you of, of uncovering uh, more, you know, historical information. Is there anything coming down the line for Rabbit Crow? Well, yeah, I've always, I've got several things in the works. Uh, <clears throat> one of the ones that uh, that I'm kind of fascinated with has been the the uh, medieval drawings of uh, of Guazzo. Uh, from the one of the witch hunters manuals and so uh, those are really rough you've probably seen these these are the ones with has the has the, it's a, it's an engraving from the middle ages of of satan with a book and the and and uh, and the followers you know uh, falling for him it's about it's it's from a journal for witch hunters and so this is this is truly medieval uh, era uh, etchings and and there's a whole series of them that can be taken out of the witch hunting manual context and actually placed into a pro satanic iconography kind of thing. So I'm I've been working with that and that that might be the that might be the next thing that comes out. I don't know. That sounds really cool. <laughs> so, so yeah, so some of this old stuff of turning turning in some cases, you know, it was. Uh, anti-satanic propaganda f- flipped on its head because they were looking to show the, the the power and majesty of Satan, and then here you know it can be used for those on the left-hand path for actual practice. <laughs> I'm sure they'd all be horrified. <laughs> that is so cool. I'm actually not familiar with the witch hunting manual. Yeah, Francisco Maria Guazzo, and it was the the Compendium Maleficarum which is the book of the witches. Um, and it was uh, like in the 1500s. And it was, uh, he was uh, one of two uh, priests that were writing these, uh, literally a handbook for uh, inquisitors looking to uh, hunt down witches. And so this thing was published in 1608. And, uh, oh, and it's got this, these series of, uh, of, illustrations of basically who witches are and what they do and how horrible they are and uh, I don't know it's probably uh, there's probably 15 illustrations of which uh, six or eight are, are usable and and so I, I managed to lay my hands on a, a really high quality version of it and uh, a really high quality reproduction it's not the 16 you know 1608 version yeah but um, but we'll be I've been polishing that up and as you might imagine it's pretty rough uh, mm-hmm. from an illustration of uh, you know 400 years ago but but it's gonna be cool. <laughs> let me ask you a question if if you don't mind here. Um, 
Do you think, and, and only because what you were just speaking to about that, that book brought this thought up, and, and since you sort of, a, you know, a student of history, of uh, certainly de facto Satanism history, maybe you can shed a little light on this. Do you think that uh, the majority of supposed witchcraft behavior or witch behavior and witchcraft itself is defined because it's a fear of behavior or it's just the most vile thing that the inquisitors could think of or priests or that it was actually maybe something that people actually did well that's a that's a tough that's a tough question uh i I tend to think it was far more of an invention of the Inquisitors for their own personal and professional advancement. Um, uh, were were there witches? That depends on what you mean by witches. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the last uh, 20 years, there's been some good scholarship that shows that uh, most of the previous scholarship uh, done on the uh, witches and the witch trials was false, <laughs> and so once you once you use that to to pare away the 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 demonstrably false uh, narratives, what you come to find with is that is that uh, you know there were unquestionably uh, you know female practitioners of folk magic, um, uh, unquestionably. Were they ever actually gathering in covens of 13 for the purpose of worshiping the devil and performing the, you know, the uh, group acts to honor him? I think that's entirely false. I think it was entirely created by the Inquisitors for their own professional advancement. You have to see the medieval Catholic Church as a corporation. Mm-hmm. As a as a as a corporation in which you rise up in the ranks to get power and wealth, oh, you may be a poor, humble priest, but you want to live at you want to be the abbot of the monastery. You want to be the bishop. You want to be the pope. You get promoted to those positions by doing something extraordinary and burning witches and finding them. Uh, Definitely shows you as uh, as a uh, as a uh, uh, one to uh, as a warrior for the cause. So <laughs> yeah. So uh, so that's my take on it. It is a fascinating thought that I mean, there's so many of us um, in in our modern time here that love the aesthetic of the witch and love that the idea of of the. You know the witches dancing around the cauldron and and paying homage to to Lucifer. You know at, at night and and all of the wonderful images that you know. I mean, more recently, you know, people like um, Rob Zombie has sort of brought back with with film uh, these really fantastic visuals. That Absolutely, don't even have any basis in historical reference but, at all. It's just but that's it's not all important. made up. It's the, but that's not important for our purposes. Yeah. You know, I think it's, yeah. it's 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 like any other aspect of satanic magic. It's important to understand the difference between fact and fantasy, and know when to use each. Um, you know, if you're going to go uh, spend your time excavating on the Bakken in Germany, hoping to find the artifact that proves, uh, you know, that it was the site of of enormous which dances for Lucifer, you're going to be digging a long time. <laughs> uh, but if, on the other hand, you 
want to create for yourself this uh, the romantic imagery of that and see yourself as carrying on this 500 year tradition then by golly you can do that mm-hmm. you know uh, certainly you won't be the first you know <laughs> um, uh, you know the uh, uh, historical works by Michelet that that uh, you know uh, built on that to to sort of pose this romantic image now, you know, of the of the witch as the rebel against oppressive society who allied herself, you know, with Lucifer as a means to, you know, as her own means of rebellion against the 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 Pope and the government and the status quo of of religious oppression, uh, you know, that's you, you want to take away none of that romantic imagery because the power behind that imagery uh, has has magical power in it that's so so cool <laughs> I, I really love this discussion well um, for the audience again I'm talking to Robert Merciless about Rabbit Crow um, designs uh, check out rabbitcrow.com for more information and you you really do have some wonderful images, and I'm looking forward to what you have in the future here. Um, any chance of uh, a deal for the listeners? Well, yeah, I was thinking that uh, you know if uh, if listeners to the show want to uh, email me uh, at uh, rmerciless at gmail dot com, what I can do is uh, I'll send them back a link to a gallery where they can get uh, some of the some of the rabid crow art. Uh, products, uh, you know, at a, at a big discount, basically at my cost. So we'll see if uh, if anybody's uh, interested enough to shoot me an email. That's uh, that's rmerciless at gmail dot com. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> I'll I'll post that in the show notes as well for everyone listening, in case you don't have a pen and paper handy. But um, yeah, I I mean to get a, a special discount on some amazing stuff I, I think that's worth an email for sure and sure. Uh, you should be expecting my email here shortly as soon as we're done um all right well robert thank you so much for joining me uh, i really enjoyed this discussion and i hope i don't know I, I think it'd be kind of fun if if you're up for it maybe we can you know meet up again and speak a little bit about uh satan and uh History. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I, I've got this kind of ongoing uh, historical project. It's uh, been, uh, you know, ten years in the works, and it's still in files and folders. But, uh, oh. but uh, surely enough to uh, to to do a short overview uh, on on a show and and talk about some of the, you know, the the various historical threads that existed, uh, you know, before 1966. That was really the threads from which Anton LaVey wove what became known to us as, as modern Satanism. It's kind of interesting to look at the pieces he put together and where they came from. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, there's a teaser for a future episode, everyone. Robert, once again, thank you so much for joining me. Um, until we can chat again, hail Satan. Hail Satan, brother. And that's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. You can also reach out to Jesse on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Damned Lucky. Damned Lucky. And your blog. What's uh... Uh, Drafts from a Satanic Windbag at WordPress.com. 
All right. Spell it out, people. You can do it. <laughs> Take it letter by letter and you'll get there eventually. <laughs> Somebody please suggest a better name. <laughs> Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, or corrections, or general comments, or whether or not that is actually a curse on that article. Uh, we really desperately want to know. You can visit the Saint Net Facebook, Google Plus, Twitter, or MySpace page for nine cents to get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Monday nights or mornings or afternoons. Fucking any time of the week, let's be honest. Via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on LastFM, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9cents via iTunes by searching 9cents, and don't forget to leave a rating or comment. And keep in mind that I'm archiving all of the this past year's episodes into a new RSS feed. So if you want them, you're going to have to go to the YouTube page or the website to stream it or get the archived RSS feed to stream it through whatever podcast reader you use. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And remember, the only way this podcast is going to live is if you tell a friend, share nine cents with your friends, your enemies, your mama, your papa. Uh, let's build this podcast together, people. Help spread the word. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. All right. And until next week, hail Satan. Hail Satan.